All right, you guys, uh, let's stand for the reading of our text, Mark chapter 14. I'm actually gonna take the last verse from last week and then we'll step into the one for this week. So I'll start at verse 42. Words of Jesus while he's in the garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. I love this because uh, last week, if you were here, uh, Jesus fell down three different occasions to just pray. He's in agony. Three times just literally throws himself to the ground. Three in the Bible uh, symbolizes the resurrection. And so that's where this is going. And now the first word of our text today is rise. Um, So, but to get to a resurrection, uh, it goes through the path that we're gonna look at right now. So just as Jesus was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared. And with Judas was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. And now the the betrayer, had arranged a signal with them. Interesting, Mark doesn't even call him Judas anymore. He just calls him the betrayer. And he arranged, the one that I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And the men seized Jesus, arrested him, and then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his Ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. And then everyone deserted him and fled. The young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was also following Jesus that night. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Strange little verse, isn't it? We'll get into it. You can be seated. So as uh, we looked at last week, uh, Jesus is in the garden and he's in agony. He's he's praying, um, take this cup from me, Father. Uh, Not my will, but your will be done. And he gets to that spot. And uh, then our text today, and our text says, now a crowd a crowd with swords and clubs led by Judas coming out to arrest Jesus. And I don't know what you're envisioning, um, but man, the way Mark describes this, it almost sounds like this ragtag band of thugs that are just kind of coming to arrest Jesus. Uh, Crowd here means a multitude. And so it's a very, very large number of men. And uh, John's gospel is a little bit more specific. Uh, He calls this crowd a a brigade, Um, Actually, the the technical term that John uses is a cohort. Um, A cohort is a military division in in a Roman legion that consists of 400 soldiers. And so this is is a substantial uh, division that's, that's coming to arrest Jesus. Now, I don't want us to see this as Rome coming to get Jesus. That's that's not what Mark's gospel wants us to see. Uh, Mark is is highlighting uh, the Jewish institutional power that's behind this. Uh, The Sadducees who run the temple, the power elites who have seats in the Jewish Supreme Court who are in bed with Rome. And we know they're in bed with Rome, not just from our history books, but even from the New Testament, because at Jesus' trial, when they bring, him, bring, them, bring Jesus to Rome to Pilate, uh, they say, we have no king. We have no king but Caesar. Just imagine 
um, that coming out of the mouths of, of, of someone who belongs to God, that we have no king but Caesar. Um, and then just the size of this army should tell us what they think about Jesus and his movement. And I think verse 48 is one of the key verses here when Jesus says to them, am I leading a rebellion? <laughs> you could better almost translate this, am I leading a revolutionary? That's a good question. Is Jesus leading a revolution? Is, is he a revolutionary? What's your answer to that? Of course. He is a revolutionary. He is leading a revolution. I think so many of us sometimes just think of Jesus as this one who's just kind of bringing peace and groovy vibes with God and trying to live this just real simplistic thing um, that's private and isolated. Uh, he, he came, he preached a kingdom wherever he went. He launched a revolution. He called every one of his followers to, to walk this revolutionary path. And I don't know if we always see and understand this about Jesus and his movement. So Jesus is not denying that he's bringing a revolution. But if you read the New Testament, he's just launching a revolution that is radically different. One that is uh, diametrically opposed to swords and clubs. And one that we're gonna see cannot be stopped by swords and clubs. So what we have here is, is what we've had uh, during this, as we've been looking at the last week of Jesus' life, it, there's a clash. There's a clash of two powers. There's a, a clash of two kingdoms that's going on here. And this kingdom that's coming to arrest Jesus, it's a kingdom that's all about the sword. The sword in this kingdom is always on top. It's the sword in this kingdom that is used to win. In fact, people in that day, probably much like our day, could not comprehend a kingdom without a sword. Every kingdom had a sword. Now, the sword in the Bible is, is also uh, imagery, um, and it refers to more than just a piece of military equipment. Uh, the sword in the Bible can also mean uh, all the extrinsic means by which we leverage power to dominate life and people. Uh, so, of course, you have the sword of politics, you have the sword of military might. I think those are the obvious ones, but, but the sword also can include things like wealth and status, celebrity, connections, all of those kinds of things. And it's not that uh, these things are inherently wrong in themselves. Uh, wealth and, and status and, and celebrity and position. Um, but when we use these things, obtain these things, accumulate these things uh, so that we can leverage them to dominate life and people, that's when the Bible says that now is the sword. And just look around at our culture today. Uh, we live in a culture that is obsessed. It is obsessed with power. It's obsessed with getting power. People, uh, one of the main driving forces of their life is, is, is to make more money, to, to have more reputation, to, to get more likes, to have more status, to become more popular, to have more influence. I mean, now we have this new term, uh, influencer. Our celebrities, just look at them. Our politicians, our sports stars, they're, 
they're nothing but sellouts to the American dollar. And then just consider, even just from that, all the chaos, the division, and the unhealth that they have brought onto our world because of their selling out. And one of the things that, that I, I have come to realize uh, through my extensive travels outside the United States is more and more what it means to be an American. Uh, to be an American today is, is, is something that in our isolated uh, state, we might not know until we actually um, get outside of America. Um, but you quickly find out that to be America is, is to be born into the most power-hungry, power-obsessed culture known to history. We are Rome. We are the big bully in the world. And, and you might not know that, but the rest of the world does. In fact, we spend now $1 billion annually on just the sword. Military equipment. I mean, that's more money than the next 10 countries collectively. We sell and distribute more sword than any country in the world. We make use of the sword more than any country in the world. And I want to say this is not a knock at all on our soldiers. I have nothing but utmost respect and reverence as they sacrifice their lives. This is a knock on our politicians. Ooh, I just went political. I'm sorry. Um, but I say all of this because Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom without a sword. His kingdom has nothing to do with political power or military might. It has nothing to do with leveraging wealth or status or position, media, propaganda, all these things. And because of this, I think Jesus is maybe the most misunderstood person in, in history. Even his disciples don't fully understand it. I mean, earlier on this night during the Passover meal, they're still arguing about who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom. Then Peter, a little bit later, says, Jesus, we are willing to fight for you. To which Jesus responds, well, how many swords do you guys have? And Peter says, uh, we have two daggers. This is all in Luke's account. Um, and, and so, wow, they got two daggers in, in the room. And I don't know if you uh, remember when we've talked about the zealots, but the zealots are these impassioned uh, nationalistic Jews at this time who believe that it's, it's God's people duty to fight a revolution against the Romans. In fact, this is what Josephus, uh, the historian writing during the first century, says about the Galileans. He says, the Galileans are conditioned for war from their infancy and have always been very numerous this territory of the Galilee has never been short of men of courage or lacked a large number of them. What's Peter? He's a Galilean. What are all the 12 disciples? They're Galileans. So to a Galilean in the first century, you couldn't have a kingdom without a bloody fight. And when they say to Jesus, Jesus, we have two daggers, Jesus says, that's enough. Almost as if, okay, guys, we're gonna take on the whole Roman army with two daggers. These guys just, they don't get it. And this is why when they come to arrest Jesus, we know that the person in verse 47 is Peter. We know this from John's gospel. Um, what does Peter do? Peter gets his sword out. 
And I always just kind of pictured Peter to just kind of like just impulsively and just violently just swinging away, you know, not even knowing what he's hitting, except then I studied more about the zealots uh, during this time period. And what the zealots would do is they would catch priests. Uh, the reason they'd catch priests, because priests were in bed with Rome, and they'd cut off a body part. They'd cut off an ear. They'd cut off a nose. They'd cut off a finger. The reason they would do this is because it would disqualify them from being priests. It's all part of the law of Moses. And you look at who Peter attacks here in the text. Uh, he, he attacks a servant of the high priest. And servants of the high priests are high up the ch- food chain and they're priests in training. <laughs> so I think Peter actually just singled this guy out. He got the guy by the ear and he just started sawing that thing off. Uh, like, take that. Um, but even more than this, I think Peter's trying to start a war. I mean, Peter has been with Jesus for the last three years, 24-7, 365. He's witnessed the awesome power of God working in and through this man every single day. I think he's thinking, if I fight, Jesus will have to fight too. And Peter's dreamed of this moment. And it's in this moment then in Matthew's gospel where Jesus scolds Peter and he says, you gotta put that thing away right now. It's almost like Jesus saying, how many times do I have to tell you this, Peter? This is not what my kingdom is about because Jesus says, he who lives by the sword, Peter, will die by it. And then what does Jesus do? He heals the man. And that's the kingdom of God. I also think this explains Judas because the extreme uh, zealots in Jesus' day, uh, had a name. They were called the, the, the Sicari or the Sicari uh, movement. Um, Sicari is named after those curved blades that they all carried. And if you notice, uh, Judas is not just Judas, he's Judas Iscariot. And I don't know if Iscariot's a last name or it's a title, but Sicari is in Iscariot. And I, I think it's easy for us to just look at Judas in, in, in our text today and kind of think of him as the worst sinner out there. Uh, you can think whatever you want, but I just think Jude, Judas is blind. He's blind like Peter. He, he's blind like the rest of the disciples. In fact, I don't even think it's Judas' intent to kill Jesus. I think he's trying to control Jesus. I think he's trying to force Jesus into his own agenda, into his zealot agenda. I think he's being a lot like Peter. If I can get Jesus arrested, he will have to fight. And so Judas lights the match. They arrest Jesus, and the bomb doesn't go off. And Judas, in that moment, freaks out. But here's my question for us. Do we truly get Jesus? Do we truly understand his kingdom? Do we understand uh, his power and, and the kind of power that he exercised? Do we really understand uh, his revolution and how his revolution actually changes the world? Or let me just ask it from this angle. Did Jesus change the world through a sword? Did Jesus change the world by getting political power? Did he change the world uh, through elections? Did he do it by getting wealth, by having a high position? Did he change the world through propaganda, 
through marketing campaigns, advertisements, Super Bowl commercials. Um, look at him. Look at his life. Look, look, look at the things that, that he taught. And right now, even, even look at his ultimate goal. I, I love how Luke's gospel says how, how Jesus set his face like flint uh, his face is set like flint on, on the end zone, and the end zone is the cross. That's why you need to know in this whole thing, Jesus is not a victim. He is in complete control of everything that is happening. This is why in one of the Gospels, he tells Peter, Peter, don't you know right now I could call millions of angels? I don't need your sword. But he's got his face set like flint on the end zone. That end zone is the cross. And why the cross? For the simple fact that the cross is the most powerful reality in the entire world. The cross utterly revolutionized the world. And right now, it can utterly revolutionize your life. One of the things that, that we've said about Mark, uh, his gospel is really the memoirs of, of the disciple, the apostle Peter. Um, the reason we know this is because at the end of Peter's life, uh, Mark becomes one of Peter's primary disciples. We see this in 1 Peter 5, verse 13, uh, where Peter calls Mark his son. And that, that's literally uh, the language of a disciple to a rabbi. Um, it's what a rabbi would call their disciple, a son. Um, and so Mark, as a disciple of Peter, writing P Peter's memoirs, uh, also just, most scholars say, he inserts himself one time in, 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 the, in the story, in the story that he's writing as he listens to Peter. And it's actually in the last two verses uh, that we read. It's these verses. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus, and most scholars think this is Mark. And so when they seized Mark, Mark fled naked, leaving his garment behind. And now you have to ask yourself, okay, why does Mark put this little detail in there? I think it's more than just to uh, get himself in the gospel that he's writing. Uh, I, I think it's more, when you look at the text that we're looking at, Mark is kind of highlighting three things in, in this story. There's a garden, there's nakedness and there's a sword. What does that take you back to? It reminds us of another garden, the first garden, where people are also seen fleeing that garden naked, and there's a sword present. It's put there to keep people out of the garden. Uh, people can no longer ever get back into the garden because there's a cherubim with a flaming sword essentially saying, you shall not pass. And Gethsemane, then, uh, for, for Mark, as he's shaping and telling this, uh, is a picture of what Jesus is doing. He's not just getting arrested, but he is returning us to the garden. He's getting us back in. He's getting us back into that garden, this world without swords, where people no longer live by the sword. They no longer live for the sword. They lay down the sword and then when you ask yourself, well, how is Jesus going to get us back into the garden? He's gonna fall on the sword. This is what the cross means. 
The cross is Jesus dealing with the ultimate sword, the sword that bars all of us from Eden, that bars us from walking with God in the cool of the day, and having peace with God. And so the cross is Jesus falling on that ultimate sword so that you and I now can have Eden again. We can once again walk with God and have peace with God and peace with each other. And that's why the cross is so central to God's plan and the heart of his kingdom. Is it central to your life? Is it at the heart of who you are? Let's put this in, 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 in the framework of Jesus being a revolutionary who's, who's, who's ushering in the greatest revolution the world ever has ever seen. Does anybody know where we got the, the expression, the handwriting is on the wall? You can shout out right now, anybody. Daniel, Daniel chapter five, the king of Babylon is indulging in this drunken orgy with a thousand of his nobles and concubines. And all of a sudden in this indulgence, this hand shows up and starts writing on one of the walls. And what the hand writes is many, many tekel farzin. They don't know what it means, so they bring Daniel in, uh, the great man of God, and they say, Daniel, what does this mean? And Daniel says to the king, king, the handwriting is on the wall. You are finished. Your kingdom is finished. Tonight, there's going to be another kingdom who's going to come up and swallow your kingdom up. And sure enough, that night, the Persian kingdom came in and swallows up Babylon the Great. And this is exactly what Christ came to bring. He came to bring many, many in. The handwriting is on the wall for the kingdom of this world because a new kingdom with a new king has come. And King Jesus in his kingdom has come to undo and overthrow the kingdom of this world. That's why Revelation says the kingdom of this world is becoming the kingdom of God and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever and ever. Now, whenever there's a big regime change or a change in a new leader, a new president, a new administration, a new coach, they, they always come in with their, their new set of values. They, they bring in a new culture that defines the new thing that they're bringing. What's the new that Jesus is bringing? What, what are the characteristics of his kingdom? What's, what, what's his culture? What, what are the values that he brings? And there's place after place. I mean, it's everywhere throughout our gospels, I think, though one of the most succinct places where this is laid out is in Luke chapter six, where it says, looking at his disciples, guys, let me tell you what my movement is about. Looking at his disciples, Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. And blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and they reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, Leap for joy, because great is your reward in my kingdom. 
Jesus just laid out the values of his kingdom. I can sum them up. Weakness, need, suffering, and persecution. That's right. And I'm like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Are you serious? Like these are the values of your kingdom? Yes. Weakness, need, suffering, and persecution. These values are always on top in the kingdom of Jesus. And then when I, I, I thought this week about those four words, I, I, I had to conclude. There are probably not four better words that describe the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, and the cross of Jesus than those four words. Weakness, need, suffering, and persecution. And Jesus doesn't stop there. Then, then he keeps going. He says, let me describe the values of the kingdom of the, of the world that I've come to replace. And he says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you, you will mourn and weep. And woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. So this kingdom of the world essentially values these four things, wealth, prosperity, pleasure, and fame. Sound familiar? See, in that kingdom, these values are always on top. They always dominate. And people uh, try to accumulate these things so that they can use these things to leverage, to dominate, and have control over life and people. These are the values of the sword. And Jesus shows up and he says, my kingdom is not about that kind of power. It's about weakness. And it's not about prosperity, it's about need, need. And it's not about comfort and pleasure, but it's marked with suffering. And it is about fame and and, and recognition and making a name for yourself. It's actually about being rejected and unimportant and unpopular and hated. And see, when you lay these two values side by side, these two kingdoms, uh, they couldn't be more opposite. In fact, the things that are are pitied in, in the kingdom of this world are actually prized in Christ's kingdom. And the things that are prized in the world's kingdom are, are, are devalued in Christ's kingdom. Do we know that? But maybe even more than that, when, when, when Jesus comes and, and everywhere he goes, every town, every village, every synagogue, he pretty much has one message. His message is the kingdom of God is here. What he's saying is many, many tackle farson. There is a new sheriff in town. A new kingdom is here to replace the old one. 
And now this is where this gets personal. Which set of values do you prize? What set of values do you pity? Which kingdom do you belong to? Which kingdom right now are you seeking? Which kingdom gets you out of bed in the morning? Which, which kingdom defines you? Jesus said, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. And I wonder if Jesus has to say to us what he said to Peter. Peter, put your sword away. You live by that sword, you'll die by that sword. I think this is where we just have to really be honest. Like what, what characterizes our life? Is it the sword or is it the cross? What is it that marks our life? What is it that, 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 that gives us purpose and meaning? What kind of people do you prize right now? What kind of people do you seek out? What kind of people do you spend your time? See, when the cross uh, comes into a person's life, uh, we start to prize the weak and we prize the poor. We prize those who suffer. We prize the outsider. We find ourselves more and more gravitating towards them. And see, and, and, and we, when we start to prize them, our life starts to take on their poverty, their weakness, their suffering, and their rejection. Because think about it, to really help someone who suffers demands a lot more than just a token word of encouragement. It demands that we actually enter their life and their pain, that we cry their tears, that we enter into their suffering. Or to really help the poor demands a hot, whole lot more than just throwing some, some pocket change at them. It, it means that, that we use large amounts of our resources to actually help them. Or think about what it takes to help someone with a questionable rep reputation. It, it demands that we actually hang out with them and spend time with them, which also might mean that our reputation might be destroyed. You mean Rod hangs out with that person? And see, the, the reason we do this is not even because we're that good. It's because we just look at Jesus. We look at the cross, and the cross gets pushed into our life, and we know that Christ's kingdom, it always breaks into weakness and poverty and suffering and need and desperation. And as much as we might dislike these realities because they're not fun when they come into our life, we still know that God's kingdom breaks in and breaks out through these things. Do you know this? Do you, do, do you live like you know it? Because to really know this actually sets us free. It frees us from ourselves. It, it, it frees us living for ourselves. It frees us from hoarding things for ourselves. It frees us from living for the sword and prizing the sword and and, and living for people who have the sword and, and, and prize the sword. And we're just free. We're free to like just give our lives away. And on the flip side, like if, if, if we, we find ourselves, and I had to do a lot of repentance on some of this stuff this week as I, as I push this stuff into my own heart um, where I just see my life entrenched in the kingdoms of this world. Um, all that produces is bondage. The worst kind. Because you, you, you live there and you go too far into it and, and all of a sudden now you're in bondage. You, you, you need the sword. And, 
and, and, and you need to have wealth and you need to have power and success and popularity and likes and, and, and you need all these things because over time your identity and your security and your worth is all beholden to them. And so then all of your life decisions are, are, are based on getting these things and then you start even looking down on people without them and you're envious of people who have more of them and your life then falls apart when they're taken away. Look at how many people's lives are falling apart these days. It's because we're so beholden to the sword. But see, Jesus came to radically change us and change us not by promising us wealth and prosperity and comfort and fame, but by actually setting our hearts free from these things. And this is exactly what happens when the cross comes into our life that we no longer live by the sword, we no longer prize the sword, we don't need to be popular, we don't need wealth, we don't need to be liked, we don't need to be on top. We're free. Money's just money. People are just people. Position is just a job description. And not only that, but then we can look at all of our personal crosses that we're called to bear, and we can understand them in light of the big cross, because we see how the big cross is so central to God's plan to redeem and restore and reconcile the world, and we, we know that the cross of Christ is not the end, but we see how God leveraged that cross and all of its suffering and poverty and rejection for the purpose of life, life to the fullest, resurrection, life. So then when weakness and need and suffering and rejection, rejection enter my life, and it will, it's just a matter of time, I don't panic, I don't have to panic, my life doesn't need to fall apart because I know that when these realities are present, the kingdom of God is near, and it's coming. And it does what it does. It enters the shalom, it enters the chaos, and it brings shalom. Are you tired of living in a world that is so hungry for the sword, power, and wealth? Are you tired in your own life for just the pursuit of it? Look at Judas. Here's where we get the phrase, the kiss of death. But it's not Jesus and his movement that's coming to an end. It's Judas who's coming to an end because, as Jesus said, to live by the sword, I don't care what it is, money, status, popularity, position, social media, you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. But we have a king who offers us a kingdom that blesses, heals, restores, and brings life. And the king of this kingdom said, you seek it. You seek it with everything you have. And Paul, one of his disciples, says, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he has brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption. And to be rescued, to be redeemed, to be brought into this kingdom, three things. Confess. Confess the hold that the kingdom of this world has on you, whether it's wealth or power, comfort, popularity, social media. Be honest about it. Have 
have the guts to name it. Have the guts to say, Holy Spirit, come into my life and you name it. You put your finger on it. And once it's named and you see it, repent. And repent is simply leaving it. It's, it's giving it up. It's letting it go. It's, it's, it's digging a hole and burying it. It's running from it. And then get on your knees and ask God, God, would you place your kingdom and your Christ in my heart? May it be the center of all that I am. In fact, this morning, we've gotten away from this because of COVID. You know, you can, you can do those three things. Actually, you know what? You can come to Crossroads week after week and hear a sermon and just sit there and have your life never be changed. Or you can actually do these last three things and begin to experience the power of God transforming you. But that's for you. And we can, we can do this by sitting in our chair and, and doing it, God and me, and God sees our hearts and he knows, so there's, there's nothing that we have to do outwardly. But in the Hebraic world, like, when they pray prayers, wash me, they don't just do that sitting in a chair praying to God. They literally immerse themselves in water and they wash because they want what they're doing externally to match what's going on internally. And that's why we're gonna reintroduce mikvah. We have some bowls around this room and maybe that's what you wanna to do today because maybe God is already putting his finger on some things that you wanna repent of and you can't wait. You can't wait to return to God. You can't wait to leave bondage and experience freedom. And so God, you know the things that you put your finger on in my heart this week. God, I just thank you for the joy of being able to repent, to look at those things, to leave those things, and to return to you. With your arms wide open, just seeing you run and embrace and restore, redeem, and resurrect. Let me just pray, God, that there would be great repentance in this place. Not just today, God, but that we'd make our whole life, God, about leaving the stuff of this world. And our whole life would be about returning to you and experiencing you, God. The Father on the porch just running to us, embracing us, restoring us and loving us and filling us. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. We